Poetry needs to be heard. Poetry needs to be heard. Now that seems self-evident. But poetry needs to be taken in through the ears, felt with the hands, tasted with the mouth. We need to hear the sounds and the rhythms and the syllables bouncing off one another first to see the grandeur and the beauty before we can jump in and start to try to analyze something. Often we'll analyze something to death and miss the beauty of it at first. So if you would, just listen along once again to our sermon text today. It's only two verses. And I want you just to be overcome, or at least hear, the grand beauty of these two beautiful poetic verses. Song of Songs 8, 5-7. through seven. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Good morning. It's good to see so many of you here, even in the midst of this crazy year, to see God's church full starting to fill up is really, really encouraging. It is a beautiful thing, and it is good to be here today. Now, this may come as some bit of a shock to some of you. Probably not. But I have realized that I'm not very cool. (laughs) I am not very hip. And I've realized this quite dramatically, teaching high schoolers for the first time. I've realized just how little of the cultural slang I am now acquainted with. I thought I had it. I do not. There are very, very few trends that I'm in lockstep with. In fact, the more that my young students mention some new internet influencer or some weird new video game that they've been baptizing themselves into for hundreds and hundreds of hours a week, I start to retreat more and more into things of antiquity going back to read books written by men and women all the way back in the 1990s. Just ancient things. But I've still managed to acquaint myself just a little bit with the vernacular of these woke masses. I know what trigger warnings are. And if I know what trigger warnings are, I imagine most of you do too. So, here's your trigger warning. You may find parts, if not all of this sermon, Quite offensive. And if so, I say this with pure love, good. As I often say, the words of Scripture should be doing violence to your understanding. The words of Scripture should be doing violence to your understanding. They should be rattling your cages. They should be shaking you up. After all, Christ said, I did not come to bring peace but division. And if scripture offends us, we need to keep being offended by it over and over and over again until we are no longer ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation 
first to the Greeks, or first to the Jews, and then to the Greeks. There are a lot of things in your life, a lot of things in my life that we ought to be ashamed of. But you ought not to feel shame for one iota of Scripture. Not a single word. Now, if most of you know, I've been teaching philosophy for over a decade at Mount St. Mary College. And throughout the college campus, there are these obnoxious signs all over the place. And they're normally handwritten, sometimes they're printed out on these hyper-yellow, fuchsia pink, and hyper-highlighter-yellow-green you know, poster boards. They're all over the place in the school. And in obnoxiously large type font, they say, sex. And then underneath those words, in a much smaller font, they'll say something like, now that I have your attention, remember, you know, register for your fall classes. Remember, you know, the drama club will be performing something on Saturday night. A myriad of different things. Sex, even the word, is something that is eye-catching. It draws one in to read the text a little bit more carefully. Well, the book from which our text, our sermon text comes today, the Song of Solomon, one might say that it sort of implies the same strategy. It screams sex over and over again in every paragraph, in every chapter, on every page. And it beckons us to come in and look at the text a little bit more carefully. Now, the poem is certainly about sex, both the desire and the longing for sex, the consummation of sex, and the aftermath of sex between a man and a woman. But it's very hard to see, if you're a careful exegete, that is, what the historic church has traditionally seen, and that is that the poem is deeply, deeply allegorical, an allegory of God's love for Israel an allegory of Christ's love for the church, of Christ's love for our very souls. And the poem talks about these glorious and deep mysteries, many times by talking about sex. Now, sex is good. Sex is wonderful. And sex is certainly alluring. So I ask, why aren't we drawn to this book? I'm 34 years old, and much like the book of Zephaniah that I preached from last time, I can't recall hearing a single sermon from the Song of Songs. I scrolled through Westminster's website and looked at all the past sermons. Not a single sermon preached on the Song of Solomon. Not from my father, not from John Vance. That's when they started keeping these records. So maybe before that, there was one. I looked at some other churches' websites, some Presbyterian churches that I've preached at, that I visited, and I did the same quick search. Has this pastor touched on the Song of Solomon? Nope. Across the board, church after church that I looked at. Now, the remarkable and really shocking thing about this normative pastoral silence in regards to the Song of Solomon is that it is a very new phenomenon. The historic church has loved, and I mean loved, preaching on the Song of Solomon. For the first 1,800 years of the church's existence, it was, the Song of Solomon, with the exclusion of the Psalms, the most preached upon book in the entire Bible. You heard that right. Not the Gospels. Not Romans. Not Ephesians. But for 
1,500 years, the most preached upon book in the Bible besides the Psalms was the Song of Solomon. The great John Chrysostom, he preached countless sermons on the book. Bernard of Clairvaux, he preached 86 sermons on the song and then died. He had just gotten to chapter 3. There's eight chapters. He was pacing for 344 sermons. That would take six and a half years of preaching. I imagine if my father preached from the Song of Songs for six and a half consecutive years, there'd be very few of you left in the pews when we got to like year two. So how can this be the case? We have this absolutely rich history of textual exposition. And all of a sudden, boom, we just stop. The church just stops preaching from the book. What happened? Did we suddenly get much more intelligent? Highly unlikely. Did we instantly get less intelligent? Slightly more likely, maybe. Well, there certainly was this dramatic cultural shift that happened in the 18th century. The Enlightenment ushered in deism, right? a view of God that separated him from his creation. And it certainly separated him from being intimately involved with his creation. The Enlightenment mob mentality, it also frightened the church. It frightened her into abandoning most allegorical readings of Scripture. Right? The church abandoned allegorical readings of Scriptures in order to defend the truth of Scripture. No, they said, if we claim that the Song of Solomon is allegorical, then aren't we just on a slippery slope to saying that the events of Jesus' life were not real, but just allegorical myths? And if it's not allegorical, and it's only about the love between a man and a woman, how valuable could it be? Now, this overreaction to the intellectual assault of modernity, coupled with our cultural prudishness, which is a pushback against the over-sexualization of the culture, has played a large role in our abandonment of the song. But we need to remember, the cosmos is God's, and it is good. We just pervert things. The cosmos is good, we pervert things. Food is good, we are gluttons. Alcohol is good, we don't know how to use it. Sex is good, but we misuse it so easily. The church sometimes locks it away, hides talking about it. We even hide what the Bible itself has to say about it. And the Bible, if you've ever read it, has a lot to say about it. It's everywhere. It's not just the Song of Solomon that uses marital bliss and sex as a way of speaking of our relationship with God. Listen to the words from Isaiah. He says, For the Lord delights in you, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Hosea, the prophet, says, And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me master. The apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Then famously in Ephesians chapter 5, after all the talk about husbands and wives, 
Paul makes it really clear for us that are slow of mind. He says, this is a great mystery, but I speak of Christ and the church. That's just a sampling, a drop in the bucket. The language is all over the Bible. But nowhere is it quite as explicit as in the Song of Solomon. And this has given many exegetes, both modern and ancient, great pause. They're worried about this. The church father Origen calls the Song of Solomon the book only for the mature. He said solid food is for the mature who can discern. However, the children in their faith find their food in other books of the Bible. Well, I'm going to encourage us today to chew on some solid food and try as best we can to get some nutrients out of this glorious, glorious poem. So we're looking at Song of Songs, chapter 8, verses 5 through 7, which is the climax of this often erotic poem. But the climax of the poem is not sexual. It's not the consummating of the love between the man and the woman. That's already happened earlier in the poem. And as we look at this passage, which is the teleological endgame of the poem, right? this is where the poem has been moving from the start. It's trying to get to this point. I want to look at it under two headings. The bride and the bridegroom. The bride and the bridegroom. So first, the bride. The woman. She is the primary speaker of the poem. She's the primary speaker in our text. Over two-thirds of the language, two-thirds of the words spoken in the poem are spoken by the woman. She's holding court. She's doing most of the talking right from the outset of the poem. The very first words of the poems are hers, the famous words. And she says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. This is the woman longing deeply for the man. This is the bride-to-be longing deeply for her future husband. This is Israel longing to be with God, to tabernacle with him. This is the soul desiring and longing to see the very face of God. It's a desire for close, intimate union. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Your name is oil poured out. The cry of the woman, the yearning of the woman, it will not go unheard in the poem. But remember, most of the speaking is done by her. She is seeking and imploring for union. And the language that the woman uses is garden language. She says, let my beloved come to his garden and taste its choice fruits. She says, my beloved is mine and I am his. He grazes among the lilies. There is perpetual talk of fruit, of pomegranates, and bushes, and trees, grasses. Now this imagery, this garden imagery, should draw the attentive reader, should draw their mind right back to the Garden of Eden. For after all, paradise is intimacy with God. Paradise is intimacy with God. Adam has direct, intimate communion with God. In Genesis 3, however, 
we get the story of the fall. We see God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. But Adam and Eve hid because they were naked. The closeness and the intimacy that they had with God before the fall had been betrayed. And now, what had previously been the height of their humanity, walking naked in the presence of God, that brought them great fear and trepidation. They had committed adultery. And now their nakedness, rather than their glory, it was their great shame. Before the fall, mankind had union and communion in their nakedness before God. Because there was nothing to hide. No need for layers. No pretenses. No mediation. They were God's. He was theirs. But Adam was an adulterer. And his adultery turned his nakedness, turned your nakedness, turned my nakedness into our great shame. A shame so great that it immediately requires the shedding of blood. Man in his nakedness immediately, what does God do? He kills the animals and provides them with skins. Blood needs to be shed to cover for your adultery. You see... The story of infidelity, of unfaithfulness, keeping man from the presence of God, it repeats itself over and over again throughout Scripture. In Ezekiel chapter 16, we see Ezekiel describing how the Lord found Israel as a small child. And then he watches her grow into maturity. Ezekiel 16 verse 7 reads, I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall, and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed, and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. Then, ten verses later, in Ezekiel sixteen seventeen, we see God flooding Israel with his kindness. He's adorning Israel with jewelry and perfume. He's doting on her, only to have his love spoiled by Israel's shocking an unconscionable infidelity. Ezekiel 16, 17 reads, You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself images of men, and with them played the whore. Then later in verse 32, speaking of Israel, God says to her, Adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. You see, adultery is a sin, but all sin is adultery. Adultery is one sin, but all sin is adultery. So here in the Song of Songs, the woman, her desires for the man, is a picture of Israel's desire, of our desire to have our virginity restored, of our desire to return back to paradise to return to the presence of God, to have access to the temple, to walk into the holy place and into the holy of holies naked. This is the Christian's desire to be in the house of God, to be in his very presence. How lovely is thy dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. But the woman, she has to wait. Her position and our position The church's position is one of waiting, of wilderness wandering, 
hoping for a return to the garden. Longing and groaning, crying out in the desert, Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let my beloved come to his garden. Restore order. Remember your promise to be our God that we might be your people. It's your face, Lord, we seek. Hide not your face from us. You see, the woman's position, the church's position, our position, it's that of Job. Right? Remember the story of Job? Job is stricken. He's smitten. He's afflicted. He's tormented in body and mind and soul. And he cries out for chapter after chapter for the Lord. For 38 chapters, Job laments and cries to the Lord. 38 chapters. That's the bulk of the book. And such is the bulk of our lives. But Job's cries, like your cries, they will not go unanswered. Eventually, God speaks. And when he does, he speaks in the infinite might and force of the whirlwind. He speaks with the full force of his overwhelming love. And that brings us to the groom, to our second point, the groom. As we said, our passage is the climax of this poem. Look with me, if you would, at verse 5 of our text. Just a beautiful verse. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Here we see the bride coming out of her wilderness wandering, coming out of the toils and tribulations and the tumult of her war. And what's the bride doing? She's no longer longing for her beloved, but she's leaning on him. Her head is tucked into his chest, secured and ever so deeply loved. This is the love of marital union that surpasses the erotic passion of young lovers. Young people don't get this yet. But this is the love of marital union that far surpasses the erotic passion of young lovers, both in its beauty and its grandeur. And what what does the bride say? She finally has her groom, and what does she say in verse 6? Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your very arm. She seeks to be sealed to her lover's arm. She wants to be publicly displayed. Her devotion and passion and love, they are not personal, private feelings, but they are radical, bold, fearless public declarations. You see, when you marry your wife, you don't just cherish her privately. But you wear your wedding ring publicly, right? You are sealed to one another, not just spiritually, but physically and corporately, publicly for all the world to see. Israel's desire is to be sealed to Yahweh. The church's desire is to be sealed to God in Christ. And this is on public display all over the place. It's on public display in your baptism in partaking of the Lord's Supper, in our public outward membership in the body of Christ. It is on display in what you are doing right now, which looks like utter foolishness to the world. The woman's love 
is a jealous love. Because there is no private Christianity. Her love is a jealous love. The love of God is a jealous love. He desires devotion. And he will suffer no divided loyalties. He is devoted to his people. And his people only. You see, that's what love is. Right? Love desires the fullness of the, uh, of the other. Of the beloved. Both body and soul. No substitutes. No lukewarm Laodicean love. Right? Divided love is no love at all. And that's the kind of love that God spits out of his mouth. Lucky for us. Our God is not a God of Laodicean love. Look at our text. And look at the extent of God's love. Set me as a seal upon your heart. As a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire. The very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love. Neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. There is nothing greater than love. And yet for many people, Right now, in the here and now, this world is a loveless place. And even for those of us that are lucky enough to have somebody that we love, or somebody that loves us, does it take a flood to put out your love? No, it seems like just a light drizzle, a little mist, and the flame of love goes out very easily. If you've been married for any period of time, you know that the mood can change like, Just on the drop of a hat. And it doesn't take something catastrophic to change the mood, to quench the love. Just a little. And you're sitting there saying, where'd the love go? What happened? But this love, the love that Yahweh has for his people, the love that Christ has for his church is as strong as death. You see, when death comes, no one can resist it. It is relentless and maniacal. The grave never loses its single-minded focus on swallowing you up. Death is proficient. It's exact at its job. There are no recalls. And death is the only thing even remotely worthy for the poet to compare the love of God to. The love of God described here is that of flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. That is because God is not something that has love in a grand abundance. But God is love. He's not a thing that has a lot of love. God himself is love. And as the poet says, many waters cannot quench love. Neither can floods drown it. In preparation for this sermon, I was thinking of Ezekiel. I'm sorry, not Ezekiel, Elijah. thought of a little bit of Ezekiel before. But particularly here, thinking of Elijah. And he knew the consuming power of God's love. In 1 Kings, he puts the prophets of Baal to the test. Publicly, and in a very humiliating way. He tells those prophets, hey, build an altar. Put a bull on it. 
and call out to Baal to set fire to it for you. And the prophets of Baal did it as, as Elijah said, and they're met with silence. Nothing happens. Elijah, very confident in his God, mocks their idolatry. Maybe he's got lost, Elijah says. Maybe he went to the bathroom, he taunts them. Then he himself builds an altar, puts the bowl on it, and before he calls out to God, he drenches the bowl in water. Listen to these words from 1 Kings 18, starting in verse 33. And he, Elijah, put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And he did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at that time of the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell. And consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. You see, all of the storms of the world, all of the trials, all of your failures and shortcomings, all of your and my perpetual adultery and idolatry cannot quench the flames of God's love. That's the kind of love that Paul understood when he famously in Romans 8 writes, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor heights nor depth nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is because his love is stronger than death. And all the waters of the created order cannot quench it. How foolish, as the poem says, would we be to turn away from this love, no matter what we were offered. In preparation for this sermon, I came across this remarkable story of a Presbyterian preacher named James Henley Thornwell. You might know the story of James Henley Thornwell. In 1859, he had the opportunity to announce the wedding of his daughter, Nancy. In the weeks leading up to this grand event, the wedding of his beloved daughter, the hundreds who were traveling to the wedding, they wound up at a funeral because Nancy fell sick, cholera, typhoid, and she began a rapid demise. Thornwell, her father, Overcome, distressed, ruined, came to his daughter's bedside in her very last moments. And he said, oh, my dear daughter, such tragedy. She replied, Father, do not weep. I know my Savior. He said, but this was to be your wedding day, your whole life now before you. She, the youth, 
with much greater maturity, said, Father, but I now go to a greater groom that I am prepared to meet. James Thornwell, he laid his beloved daughter, Nancy, later into the tomb in a wedding gown. And you can go visit the tombstone to this day. It reads, as a bride prepared for her crown. Imagine that as a parent. As a bride prepared for her crown. Well, the love of Nancy's God is that of a fire that devours the chaos of death. And it breathes resurrected life into the beloved. This poem, the Song of Songs, laced with its grand sexual physicality, it certainly points to spiritual relation with God, between God and his church. But we should realize that the analogy doesn't stop there. One great scholar, he notes that literary sex and real sex are both allegorical. Mull that over for a second. Literary sex and real sex are both allegorical. God didn't just give us the Song of Solomon to show us something of his love. He gave us sex and all of the physicality of this world to show us his love. The writers of the book of Hebrews makes this expressly clear in the passage we read for our New Testament reading. Hebrews chapter 8, when he says that the heavenly temple, it's not modeled after the earthly temple, but the earthly temple is modeled after the heavenly one. This reality right here, it is a foretaste. The love, the joy, and the marital bliss we have here is a foretaste of the wedding supper of the Lamb. But until that day, we wait for the groom to come to his garden. We wait like Nancy Thornwell, as a bride prepared for her groom. And the church cries out, hasten the day, Lord, when our our faith will be sight. Come, Lord Jesus, come, that our wilderness wandering might end. Come, Lord Jesus, come, that we might rest in you. Set us as a seal on your arm. Bring us into your fullness, for your love is greater than all the riches of the world. Amen.